0: In this episode, we will be using BattleBards sound effects. Check them out, BattleBards.com. And if you're signing up for a Prime account, be sure to use our code STACK to get a discount. Flavoring up druids. It's so easy to let game mechanics feel, well, mechanical. But they don't have to be. Dungeons & Dragons and other RPGs draw from rich sources, and if we know a little bit more about where they come from, we can find ways to use the extra detail to enrich our games. This time around, I thought it would be fun to delve into a rather esoteric figure in the game. The mysterious druid. Druids. To me, the word conjures up pictures of cloak-clad people moving through misty forests, doing secretive things, gathering herbs, or speaking quietly with each other about hidden lore. They've long been an object of fascination for me, in large part because of my interest in Celtic history, so I thought it would be useful to take a deeper look at them with an eye toward understanding more of their facets, and how we can use what we know to add flavor to the druids that appear in our tabletop games. WARNING! Before we begin, please note that there are some sections from classical sources that will deal with human sacrifice in today's episode. If that bothers you, you might want to skip this episode. If you want to listen, but don't want to hear those parts, I will play music during these sections, so if you skip ahead until you no longer hear music, and I'll provide a warning just before the section so you can skip it if you still want to listen to the rest. With that said, in terms of 5e rules, druids often tend to be treated as something like nature priests. It's an easy connection to make with all those plant spells, weather control, wild shape ability. That's fine in the context of the game, but it can be tempting to fall into a rut with druids as characters. With that in mind, I thought it would be helpful to look at the historical basis of druids and see how we might incorporate some extra flavor into what might be one of my favorite classes. It's often a good idea to start by defining terms, so that's where we're going to start. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, our word druid comes from Greek druidae, as well as Old Irish, Gaelic, and Welsh words of similar spelling, all of which seem to have the meaning of magician or sorcerer. The entry in the OED goes on to say, one of an order of men among the ancient Celts of Gaul and Britain who, according to Caesar, were priests or religious ministers and teachers, but who figure in native Irish and Welsh legend as magicians, sorcerers, soothsayers, and the like. I'll have more to share about the wide range of roles mentioned here, Another favorite source, Edom Online, shares this definition. One of the Order of Priests Among the Ancient Celts of Gaul, Britain, and Ireland. It's a word that came from the 1560s, from French, Latin, Gaulish, and ultimately from a Celtic compound, drew, wid, strong seer, from Old Celtic, derwos, true, from the Proto-Indo-European root, deru, tree, especially oak, plus wid, to know. Hence, literally, perhaps, they who know the oak, perhaps an allusion to divination from mistletoe. So that is what we are able to trace about the word's origin. It's a convoluted path full of uncertainty that leads in its winding way from its old Celtic sources through Latin and Greek, then French, and finally English. In truth, it's not just the word that gives us trouble, it's also the class of people itself. All things related to the Druids seem to be surrounded by mystery, and there's a good reason for that. We have zero surviving first-hand accounts of Druids from the Celts. We have no accounts by Druids, about Druids, and so everything we have is second-hand, or even more removed, passed on by writers of cultures that were opposed to the Celtic peoples, so it can be difficult to know how much has been colored by the outsider's perspective. What I would like to do now is turn to what early writings we do have and share what they have to say. True, they may be from non-Celtic sources, but they were written at the time of the Druids and are the best records we have because they are closest to the source. What follows is a series of excerpts from the various classical sources, with my own comments and observations thrown in. Please note that I will provide links to online versions of the texts in the show notes Although it's easy enough to find articles that mention quotation snippets, I wanted to give you more to look at, and it took (laughs) probably more time than it should have to track down the translated texts, so I hope that what I've gathered will benefit you in your own reading and consideration. In each case, I have tried to get you as close as possible to the text that I'm going to cite, but there may be additional context both before and after the quote, so be sure to take that possibility into consideration if you choose to dive in. I really hope you do. The Germanic and Celtic tribal system of the Roman period are just fascinating to me, and I hope this will spark your interest if you've never looked into it. Now for the citations. As I said previously, there is a lot we don't know about the Druids, and this is mainly due to the fact that the earliest written references are no longer available to us. In the prologue to the lives and opinions of eminent philosophers, 3rd century Greek biographer Diogenes Laertius wrote this, There are some who say that the study of philosophy had its beginning among the barbarians. They urge that the Persians have had their magi, the Babylonians or Assyrians their Chaldeans, and the Indians their gymnosophists, and among the Celts and Gauls there are the people called Druids or Holy Ones, for which they cite as authorities the Magicus of Aristotle and Sotion in the 23rd book of his Succession of Philosophers. Neither of these texts, Aristotle's Magicus, or Sotion's succession of philosophers, exists any longer. But Diogenes and other writers who did have access to them cite enough to give us a good idea of at least part of what was in them. As it is, we see here that the Celts recognized a specific class called Druids, known for their holiness, and they held them in such esteem that they were treated like those honored in other ancient cultures for their knowledge of nature through unique practice. As a side note, the Gymnosophists mentioned here mean Naked wise ones. These were Indian wise men who gave up clothing and food as too distracting as they pursued deeper knowledge. Another word in this passage might have caught your ear. You might be familiar with the Persian magi through the biblical account of the wise men who came to visit the baby Jesus in his humble accommodations. Magi were known to be heavily involved with astronomy, and it's significant that in Matthew chapter 2, the word used for the three unnamed dignitaries is magoi, and they followed a star to make their way to Bethlehem. Oh, and one last word geek moment. Magus and Magoi is also where we get our word mage from. In addition to these two early sources by Aristotle and Sotion, there seems to have been an insanely popular account written by a Greek adventurer named Paul who lived 135 to 51 BC. Around 90 BC, when he would have been in his mid-40s, He decided to leave Greece and see the world, going as far afield as Hispania, which today is Spain, and North Africa. Part of his travels took him into the shadowy heart of Gaul, where the barbaric Celtic peoples were rumored to have all sorts of unsavory habits. Through his personal experience, he was able to confirm some rumors and disprove others. His writing was authoritative enough that he was quoted by several of the authors we'll cover in this episode, and as a side note in my research for this episode, I came across a book the Philosopher and the Druids by Phil Freeman, I am really tempted to pick it up. It sounds like he is trying to reconstruct much of Posidonius's writings out of what we can gather from those who quoted him, just the sort of thing I'd love to get my hands on. From these mentions of now lost sources, we move to none other than Julius Caesar, who lived 100-44 to 44 BC. He wrote extensively about his wartime contact with the Celts of Gaul, the Central European region that roughly corresponds to France today. His commentary on the Gallic War is intended to be a chronicle of his leadership throughout the war with the Gauls. In Book 6, Section 13, he writes this, "...throughout all Gaul there are two orders of those men who are of any rank and dignity. For the commonality is held almost in the condition of slaves, and dares to undertake nothing of itself, and is admitted to no deliberation." The greater part, when they are pressed either by debt or the large amount of their tributes or the oppression of the more powerful, give themselves up in vassalage to the nobles, who possess over them the same rights without exception as masters over their slaves. So he's speaking first about the common people, how they don't really have a lot going for them, but then he goes on to describe how the nobility above the common people is divided into two parts. But of these two orders, one is that of the druids, the other that of the knights, the former are engaged in things sacred, conduct the public and the private sacrifices, and interpret all matters of religion. To these a large number of the young men resort for the purpose of instruction, and they, the Druids, are in great honor among them. For they determine respecting almost all controversies, public and private, and if any crime has been perpetrated, if murder has been committed, if there be any dispute about an inheritance of any boundaries, these same persons decide it. They decree rewards and punishments. If anyone, either in a private or public capacity, is not submitted to their decision, they interdict him from the sacrifices. This among them is the most heavy punishment. Those who have been thus interdicted are esteemed in the number of the impious and the criminal, all shun them and avoid their society and conversation, lest they receive some evil from their contact, nor is justice administered to them when seeking it, nor is any dignity bestowed on them. Over all these druids one presides, who possesses supreme authority among them. Upon his death, if any individual among the rest is preeminent in dignity, he succeeds. But if there are many equal, the election is made by the suffrages of the Druids. Sometimes they even contend for the presidency with arms. These assemble at a fixed period of the year in a consecrated place in the territories of the Carnutes, which is reckoned the central region of the whole of Gaul. Hither all, who have disputes, assemble from every part, and submit to their decrees and determinations. This institution is supposed to have been devised in Britain, and to have been brought over from it into Gaul. And now those who desire to gain a more accurate knowledge of that system generally proceed there for the purpose of studying it. There's a lot there, so let's summarize it. According to Caesar's account, Gallic society is generally divided into two parts, the commoners and the nobility. This second part is composed of two main groups the elite warrior class, which he calls knights, and the druids. And what a list of responsibilities he provided. They served as religious heads, we might call them priests, as they conducted sacrifices and held the power to permit or forbid access to worship. They could interpret laws, especially as they related to religious matters, but interestingly, and perhaps naturally, it seems their authority also extended into arbitration of civil affairs. They could serve as teachers and were almost judge like, able to pronounce both rewards for noble accomplishment or punishment for failing to abide by law. That is a wide range of responsibilities. And as you build your druid, you might see how this opens things up considerably for a lot of new dimension, moving past the reclusive woodland hermit. Now, you could have a druid who is a respected central figure within a warrior tribe, serving as a moral guide for the next generation. A druid could have a noble background or start a campaign by officiating a major feast, or be on the run from a vengeful family seeking blood for a member that was outlawed, whether rightly or wrongly. There are some neat flavor possibilities at work here. And did you notice Caesar's mention of an arch-druid? How neat is that? How about a major plot point in which the arch-druid has died and a PC has an opportunity to ascend to this lofty position through cunning guile, honest work, or by strength of arms— This one passage alone opens a lot of doors. Another author, Marcus Tullius Cicero, who lived 106 to 43 BC, was a contemporary of Caesar. In his On Divination, a two-volume book that describes the various methods of understanding the will of the gods, he had this to say in section 90 of book 1. Nor is the practice of divination disregarded even among uncivilized tribes, if indeed there are druids in Gaul, and there are, for I knew one of them myself, Divitiakos, the Aeduan, your guest and eulogist. He claimed to have that knowledge of nature which the Greeks call physiologia, and he used to make predictions, sometimes by means of augury and sometimes by means of conjecture. Among the Persians the augurs and diviners were the magi who assembled regularly in a sacred place for practice and consultation, just as formerly you augurs used to do on the nones. What's neat about this passage is it's the only one we have that calls a druid by name. Dewitiacus, more commonly spelled dewickiacus with a C, was a member of the Idui tribe of Gauls, who occupied much of the central part of what is now France. Turns out that Diwikiacus was an influential figure, something of a statesman who rose to prominence after a battle in which many of his tribe were destroyed by a powerful coalition of Germans and Celts, so he appealed to the big dog, Rome, for military assistance. Rome, of course, was all too happy for the invitation to march freely into the rich lands of Gaul, and Caesar used it as a staging area for his ongoing conflict against the people there. To add further intrigue to this figure, Diwikiacus' brother Dumnorix was decidedly anti-Roman, so the two Aedui brothers often found themselves at odds with each other. Again, a lot of drama and potential story is wrapped up in this account, and these stories are well worth looking into if you want to add some flavor of intrigue to a character or a campaign. At the same time, we have another author, Diodorus Siculus, or Diodorus of Sicily, who was a Greek historian with a 40-volume history that drew upon the work of many previous authors. I find the following excerpt an incredibly interesting peek into Gallic culture and society, and please note that there is mention of human sacrifice in this section. In Book 5, Section 31, he writes, The Gauls are terrifying in aspect, and their voices are deep and altogether harsh. When they meet together they converse with few words and in riddles, hinting darkly at things for the most part and using one word when they mean another. And they like to talk in superlatives, to the end that they may extol themselves and depreciate all other men. They are also boasters and threateners and are fond of pompous language, and yet they have sharp wits and are not without cleverness or learning. Among them are also to be found lyric poets whom they call bards. These men sing to the accompaniment of instruments which are like lyres, and their songs may be either of praise or of obloquy. Philosophers, as we may call them, and men learned in religious affairs are unusually honored among them, and are called by them druids. The Gauls likewise make use of diviners, accounting them worthy of high approbation, and these men foretell the future by means of the flight or cries of birds, and of the slaughter of sacred animals, and they have all the multitude subservient to them. They also observe a custom which is especially astonishing and incredible, in case they are taking thought with respect to matters of great concern. For in such cases they devote to death a human being and plunge a dagger into him in the region above the diaphragm, and when the stricken victim has fallen, they read the future from the manner of his fall and from the twitching of his limbs, as well as from the gushing of the blood, having learned to place confidence in an ancient and long-continued practice of observing such matters. And it is a custom of theirs that no one should perform a sacrifice without a philosopher, For thank-offerings should be rendered to the gods, they say, by the hands of men who are experienced in the nature of the divine and who speak, as it were, the language of the gods. And it is also through the mediation of such men, they think, that blessings likewise should be sought. Nor is it only in the exigencies of peace, but in their wars as well that they obey before all others, these men and their chanting poets. And such obedience is observed not only by their friends, but also by their enemies many times, for instance, When two armies approach each other in battle with swords drawn and spears thrust forward, these men step forth between them and cause them to cease, as though having cast a spell over certain kinds of wild beasts. In this way, even among the wildest barbarians, does passion give place before wisdom, and Ares stands in awe of the muses. Keep the mention of the bards in mind. Maybe someday I'll do a flavoring-up episode on that class, some things I would like to tease out of this section. The Gauls had a culture of riddles. How neat is that? You can use this as license to introduce a Druid NPC that only speaks in hints and tricky sayings that require the players to figure things out, or that could have multiple interpretations. Of course, the discussion of divination and of sacrifice links neatly with the accounts of Caesar and Cicero, so it seems like Druids had a role in this sacrificial rite. And now for the troubling bit the act of human sacrifice. Part of the Roman wars against the Celts seems to have centered on eliminating the Druids. Propagandists pointed to the barbaric practice of human sacrifice and approved of Rome's stance against it, seeing the elimination of the Celts and the Druids in particular as a way of stamping it out. The irony that Rome, home of the Colosseum's gladiatorial games, protested against human sacrifice is not lost on me. As we'll see in later statements, I think the more pressing problem was that the teaching of the Druids helped impart the Gauls with a lack of fear of death, and eliminating the power and authority of the Druids would help lessen resistance to Roman arms. I don't have a source for what I'm about to say, other than that I believe my high school Latin teacher mentioned it one time in class, but the Roman invasion of Britain, started by Caesar and completed by Agricola a hundred years later, was largely an attempt to destroy the Druids, who had come across the Channel, stir things up in Gaul, then melt back into the relative safety of the swamps and forests of modern-day England to wait for another opportunity to strike again. So we'll add devious plotters to our list of possible character traits. One last point about this passage. Notice how the druids and bards seem to have had the power to enforce a sort of peace between warring factions. What a great possible moment that could be for a player running a druid character. Drawing upon the authority of a powerful group with the ability to deny access to the gods— could help rein in trouble, or at least put it on hold. And that, I think, is something worth considering. Giving a player a chance to shine at the table by bringing peace instead of war. I think that's pretty neat. Another Greek, Strabo, who lived 64 BC to 24 AD, wrote a geography in 17 books. A few episodes ago, I covered a book about Cornwall and how it was more than just a map book. It was a description of the people who live in the places being described, Strabo did very much the same thing in his geography. And in the fourth chapter, he has this to say. Again, there is some mention of sacrifice here, although not quite as bad as in the previous one. Amongst the Gauls, there are generally three divisions of men especially reverenced, the bards, the vates, and the druids. The bards composed and enchanted hymns, The Vates occupied themselves with the sacrifices and the study of nature, while the Druids joined to the study of nature that of moral philosophy. The belief in the justice of the Druids is so great that the decision both of public and private disputes is referred to them, and they have before now, by their decision, prevented armies from engaging when drawn up in battle array against each other. All cases of murder are particularly referred to them. When there is plenty of these, they imagine there will likewise be a plentiful harvest." Both these and the others assert that the soul is indestructible and likewise the world, but that sometimes fire and sometimes water have prevailed in making great changes. To their simplicity and vehemence, the Gauls join much folly, arrogance, and love of ornament. They wear golden collars around their necks and bracelets on their arms and wrists, and those who are of any dignity have garments dyed and worked with gold. This lightness of character makes them intolerable when they conquer, and throws them into consternation when worsted. In addition to their folly, they have a barbarous and absurd custom, common, however, with many nations of the North, of suspending the heads of their enemies from their horses' necks on their return from battle, and when they have arrived, nailing them as a spectacle to their gates. Posidonius says he witnessed this in many different places, and was at first shocked, but became familiar with it in time on account of its frequency. The heads of any illustrious persons they embalm with cedar, exhibit them to strangers, and would not sell them for their weight in gold. However, the Romans put a stop to these customs as well as to their modes of sacrifice and divination, which were quite opposite to those sanctioned by our laws. They would strike a man devoted as an offering in his back with a sword, and divine from his convulsive throes. Without the Druids they never sacrifice. It is said they have other modes of sacrificing their human victims, that they pierce some of them with arrows and crucify others in their temples, and that they prepare a colossus of hay and wood, into which they put cattle beasts of all kinds, and men, and then set fire to it. Strabo confirms a number of divisions among the wise, this time adding a group called the Vates, who seem to be dedicated to sacrifices and distinct from the Druids who are more dedicated to nature and moral philosophy. Here we might note that this could lead to a very segmented view of Druidism, in which these groups are considered independent of each other but work together to form the moral and religious leadership of a people. Before we move on, I want to make sure you caught it. There in the brief mention of sacrifice was the mention of the wicker man. If you've ever seen the movies, you can rest at ease that Nicholas Cage's experience was documented a couple thousand years in advance. This reference could lead to some very memorable occasions in a game. Let's move on to one of the most memorable figures of Roman intellect and authorship. Gaius Plinius Secundus, more commonly known by his stage name Pliny the Elder. He lived from 23 to 79 AD. This guy was insatiably curious and devoted his life to recording all sorts of things about the people, places, and creatures of his time. He was a scientist before the word existed. So devoted was he to his work that he died of asphyxiation while observing the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, the same eruption, by the way, that ended up covering nearby Herculaneum and Pompeii in molten rock. His magnum opus was his multi volume natural history a far-reaching record of all sorts of things, to include this passage from Book 16, Section 95, in which he mentions the Druids. Upon this occasion, we must not omit to mention the admiration that is lavished upon this plant, mistletoe, by the Gauls. The Druids, for that is the name they give to their magicians, held nothing more sacred than the mistletoe and the tree that bears it, supposing always that tree to be the robur, that's a Latin word that is synonymous with oak, Of itself, the oak is selected by them to form whole groves, and they perform none of their religious rites without employing branches of it, so much so that it is very probable that the priests themselves may have received their name from the Greek name for that tree. In fact, it is the notion with them that everything that grows on it has been sent immediately from heaven, and that the mistletoe upon it is a proof that the tree has been selected by God himself as an object of his special favor. The mistletoe, however, is but rarely found upon the oak, and when found is gathered with rites replete with religious awe. This is done more particularly on the fifth day of the moon, the day which is the beginning of their months and years, as also of their ages, which with them are but thirty years. This day they select because the moon, though not yet in the middle of her course, has already considerable power and influence, and they call her by a name which signifies in their language the all-healing. Having made all due preparation for the sacrifice and a banquet beneath the trees, They bring there two white bulls, the horns of which are bound for the first time. Clad in a white robe, the priest ascends the tree and cuts the mistletoe with a golden sickle, which is received by others in a white cloak. They then immolate the victims, offering up their prayers that God will render this gift of His grace to those to whom He has so granted it. It is the belief with them that the mistletoe, taken in drink, will impart fecundity, or fruitfulness, to all animals that are barren, and that it is an antidote for all poisons. Such are the religious feelings which we find entertained towards trifling objects among nearly all nations. Here we have druids connected with a specific plant, mistletoe, and the oaks on which it grows. I thought it was interesting that they had to have physical components, somatic components in their rites with the branches of oak trees, and they would form groves in which religious rites are carried out. There is great significance attached to the state of the moon and to time, Druids seem to have been the keepers of the calendars also. Note the use of ceremonial robes worn during such rites and the role of intermediary that Druids played between mortals and gods. There also seems to be a measure of physician involved, so yet another dimension for the Druid. Living at the same time as Pliny was Pomponius Mella, who died around 45 AD. He was a Roman who lived around the Straits of Gibraltar, there at the south end of Spain, He wrote a short but influential geographical work entitled De Situ Orbis, or The Situation of the World, in which he described the geography of the known world. In Book 3, sections 18 and 19, after describing the land of Gaul, he wrote, and again, there's a slight reference to human sacrifice here, The peoples are crude, superstitious, and sometimes even so monstrous that they used to believe that to the gods, the best and most pleasing sacrificial victim was a human being. Traces of their savagery remain, even though it has been banned now. Nevertheless, after they have led their consecrated human victims to the altars, they still graze them slightly, although they do hold back from the ultimate bloodshed. And yet, they have both their own eloquence and their own teachers of wisdom, the druids. These men claim to know the size and shape of the earth and of the universe, the movements of the sky and of the stars, and what the gods intend. In secret, and for a long time, twenty years, They teach many things to the noblest males among their people, and they do it in a cave or in a hidden mountain defile. One of the precepts they teach, obviously to make them better for war, has leaked into common knowledge, namely, that their souls are eternal and that there is a second life for the dead. Therefore they cremate and bury with the dead things that are suitable for the living. Long ago, traders' accounts and debt collection were deferred until they died. And some individuals happily threw themselves onto the pyres of their loved ones as if they were going to live with them. In this account, we have more of the same, although it sounds like human sacrifice might have been on the way out at this point. Add to the growing druidic portfolio astronomy and geology, but also importantly education as they instilled up-and-coming Celts with the notion of a cyclical life, and we'll see more on that in just a moment, This training apparently took place in hard-to-reach places, perhaps to instill the students with a sense of wonder, while also removing them from their normal distractions. This concept of a return to life would be very troublesome to the Romans because this general belief made Celtic warriors more heedless of their own safety in battle, meaning they were more ferocious. As I was doing the research for this episode, I came across in my preparation a verse form of the higher secrets that Mela may have acquired from the Druids, As Celtic men were prepared mentally and physically for a lifetime of warfare, they would also have bumping around in their heads this triad, which encouraged them to act bravely in war, to remember that souls are immortal, and that there is another life after death. Three more quotes to go. In a previous recording, I believe I mentioned a poem, Pharsalia by Roman poet Marcus Aeneus Lucanus, or simply Lucan. He was undeniably a talented author, but he had the misfortune to write under the tumultuous reign of the unstable emperor, Nero, and an uncertain series of events led to Lucan falling on the wrong side of a conspiracy against Nero, with predictable results. So he died when he was about 25 years old. However, his Pharsalia is a monumental work, and he has a couple passages of interest to us. In the first book, he has this to say. Those who propitiate with horrid victims, ruthless tutates and Essus, whose savage shrine makes men shudder, and Tyranus, whose altar is no more benight than that of Scythian Diana, so basically he's mentioning several Gallic or Celtic gods. The bards also, who by the praises of their verse transmit to distant ages the fame of heroes slain in battle, poured forth at ease their lays in abundance. And the druids, laying down their arms, went back to the barbarous rites and weird ceremonies of their worship. To them alone is granted knowledge, or ignorance it may be, of gods and celestial powers. They dwell in deep forests with sequestered groves. They teach that the soul does not descend to the silent land of Erebus and the sunless realm of Dis below, but that the same breath still governs the limbs in a different scene. If their tale be true, death is but a point in the midst of continuous life. Truly the nations on whom the pole star looks down, that means places north of Rome, are happily deceived, for they are free from that king of terrors, the fear of death. This gives the warrior his eagerness to rush upon the steel, his courage to face death, and his conviction that it is cowardly to be careful of a life that will come back to him again. As we said before, this was a problematic teaching, this idea of life returning to the brave in battle. Then moving to the third book, we find a part that is so incredibly evocative to my mind, I believe I've read this for you before, but it's worth repeating. Just before the section I'm about to read, Lucan describes Caesar's siege of the Greek-held city of Massilia, a strongly fortified place that lies along his route of march. Today, Massilia is the French city of Marseille. To leave this city uncaptured could mean leaving a strong enemy behind Caesar, so he feels compelled to take it to keep a clear line of retreat. However, there's a wrinkle. As he plans his defensive positions to take the city, there is an ancient grove along the line, a place where fearsome worship had taken place in ages past. The soldiers under his command are hesitant to do anything about it, and you'll see why. A grove there was, untouched by men's hands from ancient times, whose interlacing boughs enclosed a space of darkness and cold shade and banished the sunlight far above. No rural pan dwelt there, no Sylvanus, ruler of the woods, No nymphs. But gods were worshipped there with savage rites, the altars were heaped with hideous offerings, and every tree was sprinkled with human gore. On those boughs, if antiquity reverential of the gods deserves any credit, birds feared to perch. In those coverts, wild beasts would not lie down. No wind ever bore down upon that wood, nor thunderbolt hurled from black clouds. The trees, even when they spread their leaves to no breeze, rustled of themselves. Water also fell there in abundance from dark springs. The images of the gods, grim and rude, were uncouth blocks formed of felled tree trunks. Their mere antiquity and the ghastly hue of their rotten timber struck terror. Men feel less awe of deities worshipped under familiar forms. So much does it increase their sense of fear not to know the gods whom they dread. Legend also told that often the subterranean hollows quaked and bellowed, that yew trees fell down and rose again, that the glare of conflagration came from trees that were not on fire, and that serpents twined and glided about the stems. The people never resorted there to worship at close quarters, but left the place to the gods, for when the sun is in mid-heaven or dark night fills the sky, the priest himself dreads their approach and fears to surprise the lord of the grove. This grove was sentenced by Caesar to fall before the stroke of the axe, for it grew near his works. Spared in earlier warfare, it stood there covered with trees among hills already cleared. But strong arms faltered, and the men, awed by the solemnity and terror of the place, believed that if they aimed a blow at the sacred trunks, their axes would rebound against their own limbs. When Caesar saw that his soldiers were sore hindered and paralyzed, he was the first to snatch an axe and swing it, and dared to cleave a towering oak with the steel. Driving the blade into the desecrated wood, he cried, "'Believe that I am guilty of sacrilege, and thenceforth none of you need fear to cut down the trees.' Then all the men obeyed his bidding. They were not easy in their minds, nor had their fears been removed, but they had weighed Caesar's wrath against the wrath of heaven. Ash-trees were felled, gnarled holm oaks overthrown. Dodona's oak, the alder that suits the sea, the cypress that bears witness to a monarch's grief, all lost their leaves for the first time." Robbed of their foliage, they let in the daylight and the toppling wood when smitten supported itself by the close growth of its timber. The peoples of Gaul groaned at the sight, but the besieged men rejoiced, for who could have supposed that the injury to the gods would go unpunished? But fortune often guards the guilty, and the gods must reserve their wrath for the unlucky. When wood enough was felled, wagons were sought through the countryside to convey it, and the husbandmen. Robbed of their oxen, mourned for the harvest of the soil left untouched by the crooked plow. There's a lot going on in there, and there's no direct indication that this was a druidic grove, but it wouldn't take too much of a stretch to connect it based on the previous texts that we have covered. Also, seeing a place like this through the superstitious eyes of the Romans is very telling, and it's a neat glimpse of how the power of hidden practices can work on the minds of even those who are so capable in warfare. If this was a Druidic place of worship, we can see why the Romans really wanted to get rid of so terrible an opponent. Now we'll move on to one of my favorites, Publius Cornelius Tacitus, who lived 56 to 120 AD. I like him most because of his writing about the ancient Germans. It makes for compelling reading and captures a lot of detail about a people that were so numerous and hardy that the first emperor, Augustus, recommended that Rome generally place its northern border along the near side of the Rhine, so that mighty river could serve as an additional line of defense against the Germanic people in their huts and forests on the other side. This is a gross simplification of the matter, of course, but the basic idea is there. Anyway, in another of his works, The Annales, Tacitus traces Rome's imperial history from the second emperor, Tiberius, to Nero, a span of about 50 years, Halfway through the 14th book, he describes a key moment in Rome's invasion and conquering of Britain. The invasion, which began in 43 AD, started in the southeast area of England, and as the Romans gained a foothold, they spread north and west, gradually driving before them the Celtic people who did not choose to willingly fall under the new regime. This, of course, included the Druids, who chose to continue moving westward until, at last, they arrived at the Welsh coast and came to the island of Innes Mon. Which the Romans called Mona, the island off the coast of Wales that is called Anglesey today. Sensing an opportunity to eliminate the last major resistance to its rule, Rome pushed westward and drew up on the other side of the substantial channel that divides the island from the mainland. The refugees prepared to make their last stand, and they were counting on their army that lined the island shore to defeat the Romans coming toward them. We'll pick up here in sections 29 and 30 of Book 14. The section also has mention of human sacrifice now britain was in the hands of suetonius paulinus he therefore prepared to attack the island of mona which had a powerful population and was a refuge for fugitives he built flat-bottomed vessels to cope with the shallows and uncertain depths of the sea thus the infantry crossed while the cavalry followed by fording or where the water was deep swam by the side of their horses on the shore stood the opposing army with its dense array of armed warriors while between the ranks dashed women in black attire like the furies with hair disheveled waving brands or torches all around the druids lifting up their hands to heaven and pouring forth dreadful imprecations scared our soldiers by the unfamiliar sight so that as if their limbs were paralyzed they stood motionless and exposed to wounds then urged by their generals appeals and mutual encouragements not to quail before a troop of frenzied women the romans bore the standards onwards smote down all resistance and wrapped the foe in the flames of his own torches. A force was next set over the conquered, and their groves, devoted to inhuman superstitions, were destroyed. They deemed it indeed a duty to cover their altars with the blood of captives and to consult their deities through human entrails. I find this scene so striking, and it's hard not to shudder at the thought of women's screams mingling with the roars of doomed warriors lined up on the shore, watching as a Roman marine invasion force comes bobbing across the channel toward them in a mixture of boats and people swimming. Yet these Romans were somehow able to make it onto land with some sort of military order in spite of fatigue and fear, and overcame this last stronghold where the Druids stood in brutal fashion. It is a legendary moment, and again gives some sense of the mysterious allure of the Druids to stiffen the spine of a retreating people, even as they frighten the Romans that face them. The last and latest of the texts we'll cover is from the Rerum Gastarum by Ammionus Marcellinus, 330-400 AD. This is a chronicle that covers Roman history from about 96 to 378 AD. It doesn't add much to our discussion, other than to show that the existence and legacy of both bards and druids seems to have persisted for a couple hundred years. After sharing that an unnamed people, perhaps the Celts, fled from several places in the eastern Mediterranean, the author mentions that they came to Central Europe and began settling in numerous towns, and here we'll pick up in Book fifteen. Throughout these regions men gradually grew civilized, and the study of the liberal arts flourished, initiated by the bards, the Uhagais, and the Druids. Now the Bards sang to the sweet strains of the lyre the valorous deeds of famous men composed in heroic verse, but the Uhages, investigating the sublime, attempted to explain the secret laws of nature. The Druids, being loftier than the rest in intellect, and bound together in fraternal organizations, as the authority of Pythagoras determined, were elevated by their investigation of obscure and profound subjects, and scorning all things human, pronounced the soul immortal. Here we have confirmed for us the notion of a divided intellectual structure amongst the Celts of Gaul. It split between the bards, who served as something like musical historians, the Euhages, perhaps the Vates from Strabo's account, And the Druids, who seem to be the most accomplished in terms of mental acuity and bound to each other in fraternal organizations, a description that raises some interesting images of small, localized groups of Druids operating in specific geographic areas. And here again we have repeated the idea of the teaching of immortality. So those are the quotes that I wanted to share with you. Let's try to summarize what we've discovered in our time together. The Druids and the Celtic people as a whole did not record anything about the Druids, and that is to our loss, so we're left to the mercies of contemporary authors from foreign cultures trying to capture what they could in a time when so little was known about the Celts. Most of what we know comes from an imperial point of view, in which the Druids are depicted as mysterious figures who stir up emotion and resistance from the shadows. Yet we are also able to tease out some helpful details, as we've seen that the Druids could serve as priests, teachers, patriots, medics, Resistance fighters, scientists, historians, studiers of nature, studiers of the intangible, and quite a bit more. There is a lot here to draw from, and I hope this exploration has opened your eyes to some new possibilities for druids, whether you're a player or a dungeon master. That is it, our trip through what I could find of druids as they're mentioned in classical literature. If I missed anything in that vast body, please tell me, and I can provide a follow-up later I know there's a ton of fiction about Druids out there. I remember Alan on the Druid and the Sword of Shenara series, for instance, but for this episode I wanted to focus on the historical writings. And there was a lot here. A very information-dense episode, but I hope it's been interesting, and more important, I hope it has given you some fuel for your own games. The Druids and the Celtic people they served and guided are such an interesting part of history to me, and I thought it was worth digging in to see what we could discover together. What have you gotten from this episode, aside from a need to get up and move? What new druid concepts have you thought of? How might you incorporate these ideas as a dungeon master or as a player? I would love to know. You can, of course, find us on Twitter and Instagram at Stack of Dice, by email at stack.o.dice at gmail.com, or on Discord. I'm curious to know what you think and to see your brilliant ideas. Please do share them with us, because I benefit from your great ideas, too. With that, I'll put my Flavor Shaker away for now, and I'll be on the lookout for another subject for a future creation corner, perhaps focusing on the bards next. If you have an idea for a Flavoring Up episode, send that our way. There's lots out there, and we can find ways to improve our games together. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you at our table next time, right here at Stack of Dice.